Welcome back, rich girls and guys, to The Money with Katie Show. Today, we're going to talk about something that, it seems to me, impacts just about every working adult's life satisfaction, and that is liking what you do for work, finding fulfillment or enjoyment or just general satisfaction from what you do. I think it's funny, though, because... If you trace this question back more broadly to the first question you were probably asked as a little kid, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? It brings to mind some pretty hilarious and off-base, frankly, inclinations for me personally. For example, when I was a kid, I loved animals, which made child Katie think that meant she should be a veterinarian. It makes sense, right? You like animals, so you should totally enjoy slicing them open for the next 40 years. Unsurprisingly, that was wrong. (laughs) Same with high school Katie, who was so preoccupied with her own bout of cystic acne, and she was so close with her dermatologist that she decided she too wanted to be a dermatologist. But then high school Katie quickly gave up on that dream when she learned that it took four years of college and another eight years of medical school, residency, and specialty to achieve. 12 years of work just to look at acne, skin cancer, and perform mole removals was not interesting to me at 18. But when I think back really far, when I think back to what the kid version of me liked to do before she knew what work was or had gainful employment on her radar at all, there were definitely some clues that would have made my current occupation make sense. For one thing, I was always starting little businesses. In first grade, I launched my first commercial enterprise. It was called Tattoo City, and it involved me coloring on my fellow first graders with gel pens. Yeah. And I would charge them whatever they could scrounge together to pay for my handiwork. So like scented erasers, lip smackers, Legos. I didn't really discriminate about the pay, and I adhered advertisements to the walls of the classroom to let all the other six-year-olds in the room know what's up. That is until Henry Gallenstein launched a competitor operation aptly named Tattoo Town, and Mrs. Egbers, our teacher, shut us both down. So that's a true story, by the way. Shout out to Henry Gallenstein. That was one clue that I was maybe a little bit enterprising, but the other one that sticks out to me now is the fact that I was constantly performing. I liked attention. I loved attention. Putting on shows for my parents, my parents' friends, stand-up comedy for my grandma and grandpa, like my entertainment value as a child before I developed, you know, the feelings of being self-conscious, it knew no bounds. And I was definitely always looking for a microphone or a camera. So is it any surprise that I became what I loathe to call a content creator, a podcaster, a millennial sellout? No, it's probably not. I think if you think back on your childhood, there will be clues like that. Things that indicate to you what you were really good at, what you were innately into, personality traits, what you were curious about. And it's less about the subject matter, like animals or acne, but more about, I think, your disposition as a kid. So that baby tangent aside, I want to propose something totally different today that maybe it's not your job that's the issue, but the way that you're approaching that job, that you can actually train yourself to like what you do by immersing yourself in it more wholly and engaging more deeply with that craft. And and in other words, kind of accepting that that is your job and that you're good at it and that it's okay to want to really dive into it, even if it's not your 
life's work or your passion. I think we so often believe that if we're not crazy passionate about our day job, that something must be wrong with it or wrong with us. But I actually think it might be more about a misalignment of expectations. The first time it occurred to me that maybe I was the problem was when I read Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. In it, he suggests that it's not the work we're doing, but how we're doing it that makes us unhappy. And at that rate, you could slot any type of labor into that framework, and you'd probably get a similar lackluster result. Here's a quote. To build your working life around the experience of flow produced by deep work is a proven path to deep satisfaction, end quote. It kind of tracks, though, right? I always used to say that writing— specifically for Money with Katie, but honestly, writing in general, was the one thing that made me forget to eat and poop. Wait, why is the theme music playing? No, Nick, don't even think about putting sound effects here. I see that look in your eye. Don't do it. Don't do it. Ooh, okay. Made it through that one, Scott Free. That was close. Um, Remind me not to make references to pooping on this podcast again. Uh, So the point that I was trying to make before I was so rudely interrupted by the theme song was that I would get completely absorbed in my Money with Katie work, and it really felt good to immerse myself in something that created something else. That was just what I personally found flow state with. But why couldn't I apply that same flow state to my real work? Couldn't I have just as easily replicated the conditions in which I achieved flow state while blogging and layered them on top of my work at the time? That was the thing that was paying the bills. That's not to say that you should eschew from pursuing your side hustle that makes you happy, just that if you don't have a side hustle that makes you happy and you're trying to earn more in your traditional career field, Creating satisfaction around your work is something you could probably manufacture. For the record, Newport's whole deep work theory revolves around the idea that we're too distracted and screen horny these days, and that it prevents us from achieving a satisfying state of deep focus and attention. So it's also possible that it's contextual with like the technological age that we live in. And that the constant context switching and pinging and dinging and ringing and scrolling and refreshing keeps us in this frenetic, agitated state that doesn't only not feel good, but is so common in modern white-collar America. His book, Deep Work, contains tons of tips and tricks for blocking out distractions and learning how to work deeply, but perhaps the biggest takeaway that I had is one that has nothing to do with focus at all. Once we realize that the grass isn't greener and we're just going to take our same distracted, agitated self to whatever role we land next, it kind of makes it easier to actually enjoy the job that we have because we've now removed the constant, oh, you know, there's something better out there for me, temptress from the equation. And you might be thinking, Kitty, what does it have to do with money? Like, why does it matter if I like what I do? It's just work. Shouldn't I just suck it up, grin and bear it? other sad analogies, and just do it? Well, sure, if you don't want to get very far. My hypothesis around this stuff is this. To be compensated handsomely for any job, you usually have to work your way up the ranks. You have to be better than other people at that same job, you know, provide more value than others. And in order to be better at something than others, to become world-class at something, you have to put in the time. You have to put in the hours. And in order to put in enough hours to actually learn your shit and get good, you got to find some satisfaction or excitement or fulfillment from it. 
Otherwise, working on it is going to be a matter of sheer willpower, and the forces of distraction and laziness and whatever else will constantly be a drag on that momentum. Excitement and enjoyment are like fuel for those manpowers. They will get you through and pull you forward so you are not physically pushing your way through day after day. So in this case, liking what you do is not a warm and fuzzy pursuit. It is a practical one. It's a financial one. And that means you can either go find something else that you know you like, or, and this is what I think most would probably do, learn to like what you've got now and lean into the areas of the job where that comes most naturally, or you feel like you're excelling already. I'm sure you have friends, or maybe you are the friend that changes jobs frequently, and you never seem to feel like you got it quite right, or they never seem to feel like they got it quite right. They can always find something wrong with the new gig, or more likely, they're just disappointed each time because it's not exactly what they expected it to be. This usually means someone may have an issue with how they are approaching their work rather than the work itself. Now, that's not to say you won't have a dud every once in a while. I've certainly had, let's see, at least one job where I knew it was not a good fit and I knew I could not have an impact simply because of how the organization was structured. It was very disorganized. So I left. I got out of it as soon as that was clear. But that general typical Wednesday malaise that settles in around 2 p.m. and makes you feel bored and uninspired in a job that's otherwise pretty decent. it's probably not the job. That's probably the approach. I wanted to talk to someone who is a career expert about this topic and the idea of a good enough job that you can turn into a great job simply by the way that you approach it. That's why Lauren, also known as Career Contessa, is on the show today. So Lauren, welcome to The Money with Katie Show. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. So my first question for you. When you hear someone tell others to follow their passion, what does that bring up for you? Oh, lots. Um, Anxiety, (laughs) fear for them, overall nerves and sort of that cringe feeling of, please don't do that, you know, or like, you're going to regret that, or here we go again (laughs) with this. I talk a lot about, I guess it's kind of similar, but sort of like dream job myth. And Mm. I would say passion falls into that category as well, which is it's this myth that we've been very much sold, like on it, we come by honestly, but very much sold that it exists out there and that you can find it and it's going to solve all your problems. So yeah, cringe factor for sure. (laughs) When slash where do you think that came from? What's the origin of the dream job myth? Oh, well... (laughs) Well, if you really, if you want like tons of it, you can always read my book because I studied this. So I wrote my master's on millennial women and career resources. And I basically studied the millennial generation and why we were very much obsessed with this. Essentially, we grew up as a generation believing that X plus Y was going to equal fulfillment. It was a simple formula. You know, if you went to the right college, if you checked the right boxes, all these things existed. And then you get to kind of the first unscheduled portion of your life after school. And there's this very real moment of, wow, this isn't going the way I thought. And I, one of the terms I talk a lot about also in my book is, you know, just like this expectation hangover, which is actually a term that Christine Hassler coined, but the idea of like, 
I thought it was going to be one way and it's not. And this myth, it could be from our education systems. It could be from, you know, women were, were told kind of go out and do it all. And there's like a lot of things that compound in there. And I, I know that people are probably a little over hearing about this, but the general idea is like, if you have ever felt like, Hey, there's a dream job out there. There's a job that's going to check all my boxes and fulfill me. And everyone else has one. And I don't, you come by that. Honestly, um, everything from, um, what we read in magazines and what we saw on TV to what we were told in our school systems. Right. And we were given these you know, syllabus is that told us like, here's how the course is going to go. And again, like we were just very set up with a lot of feedback and a lot of direction and just careers and life doesn't come like that. You know, they always joke, doesn't come with a manual. And I always used to say like, I didn't lack ambition, but I lacked direction. And I, I think that's like a common feeling for people when it comes to sort of this dream job myth. And what keeps us stuck is feeling like this one job is out there and that we deserve it and that we're going to find it. And if we don't have it, then we start this sort of like negative spiral of like, what's wrong with me that this thing isn't there. And so you see it with like passion, right? Now we have Instagram and all this like comparison to other people where we're able to see even this like quote that's meant to be inspiring, but telling you to like chase your passion. You'll never work another day in your life, right? So all your expectations are built around this thing that doesn't exist. It's terrible. Kind of reminds me of some parallels to dating. Yes. Oh, your soulmate is out there. Your one true soulmate. And so all of this type of language, while well-intentioned, drives that grass is greener mentality, I think. Yes. So the flip side of this then, or the antidote, if you will, is the concept of the good enough job and why the idea of settling for something may actually have an unfair connotation. So what do you think about that? Let's back up one second and talk about the fact that when we envision these quote unquote dream jobs, they never include the absentee or toxic boss, right? Or that really hellish commute or the manipulative coworkers who bring out all this imposter syndrome. And so when we meet these tough moments at work, we feel really unprepared and let down. Mm. And I think it would be much more helpful if we moved away from that and we started to envision what I like to call these good enough jobs and define what they mean for you. I think a lot of also what's happened is a lot of definitions of success or dream jobs are very much based on either what society has told you or what your friend has or something else, right? So kind of a key here is what that means to you. So my definition of the good enough job is a relatively enjoyable paid work that allows you to live comfortably, but isn't your entire world or identity. And I think identity is probably a key word there. I may need a different job. Yeah, like, oh, entrepreneurship, that's like a whole other animal. But, you know, it's the job that doesn't ask you for more, you know, more than 40 hours of work each week, more fulfillment from the job than other parts of your life or more passion for it than it brings than things that you have outside of work. And of course, it's going to mean different things for different employees. And it's even going to mean different things at different times for one person. It might be the position that has decent pay and great work-life balance, or it might be the position that, you know, when I was much younger in my career, I was totally fine with having the job that was a big portion of my day-to-day life because I was 23 and that was really a priority. So for me, the good enough job is the job that really doesn't ask more of you and and doesn't have to be your identity. Um, You can have something you enjoy also outside of work. After the break, Lauren gives specific ways to identify work fulfillment and helps answer the age-old question, should I stay or should I go now? (laughs) 
Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What would you tell someone who says they're either like, oh, well, I like my job. It's fine, but I don't know if I want to do it forever. Or like, oh, I guess I'm just a little bored or I don't feel very interested in it. Like, what would you tell somebody that's feeling that way to change their perspective? What it comes down to is taking the time to self-reflect about what is important to you and what do you need in order to check those boxes of quote unquote fulfillment for you, right? Like, yeah, I like to always use real estate. Like, unless your budget's unlimited, you have to pick one yeah, of your top priorities. Totally. Like location, you really want that kitchen, whatever. It's like kind of similar when it comes to our career. And I think in order to kind of figure out your next career move, I think you have to do a couple of things. And people hate this because it requires reflection. It requires time. And like, there isn't a black and white answer. And again, we were kind of raise, uh, whether you're a millennial or not, everyone has sort of become this person where they're like, where's the one, two, three, you know, directions on how to do this. But for me, I always tell people, I'm like, okay, first reflect on what gives you the most energy in your current job. And where do you have the most success, right? Like if you're really good at something and it gives you a lot of energy, you're excited to do it. Those are good signs. Like keep following those, you know, and into what you might want to do next. Also, you can recognize the things that really drain you of your energy, things that you're not good at, that you're like, I'm constantly being asked to do this thing, but I don't enjoy it. Um, So those are little hints for the self-reflection. The next thing I encourage people to do is kind of follow those clues and then think about, okay, what are the top three things that are really most important to me in my career? I remember when I was a recruiter, whenever we would get to the offer stage and we'd be negotiating with people, they would be negotiating for this and that. And you're like, what's the most important thing to you? Because if like, let's start there and work backwards. And a lot of people don't know that answer or they start saying, well, I don't know. So I'm going to look on the internet and see if I can find the answer, which is again, very much. My answer is money. (laughs) (laughs) And and like for some people that is the most important thing. And and it's kind of strange because research has actually shown that uh, money doesn't lead to having the most fulfilling job, you know, but again, it's all personal. It's all going to be based on your unique life stage too. So I would tell someone who is in this stage right now, uh, take the next month, keep a, a work journal and reflect. You could do it at the end of every day. You could do it at do it at the end of every week. What gives you the most energy? Where are you having the most success? Where do people give you compliments? Maybe any interpersonal like moments or things like has anyone given you feedback on something? And then go back and reflect on that and see if you can find some clues in there. And then from there, you can take action steps to you know explore other career paths, via informational interviews, networking, you can start to um, think about, is there a skills gap I need to fill? That kind of thing. So people want me to give them the answer. And I'm like, this sounds really cheesy, but like the answer lies in sort of what you're currently doing. And I'm sorry, but it will take more than an hour for you to to find those clues. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of interesting too, because I think where I have personally gotten hung up in the past, and I've heard this same sentiment reiterated by others. So I tend to think it's maybe a little bit universal, at least for our generation, but I would assume for those that came before us too, that sometimes you just need permission to be okay with the good enough job and you need to 
give yourself permission or get permission from someone else like, hey, this doesn't have to be your ultimate life's work and footprint on the world. And it's okay if you do enjoy it, but it's not your ultimate passion. And it's okay to want to get better at it and to want to stick with it. And I think sometimes people get stuck in that in between of like, should I be looking for more or is it okay for me to stick with what I have? And if somebody's in that in-between phase, how should someone think about the choice to either lean in to where they are, not to be corny and <laughs> borrow the language from the Sheryl Sandberg book, but to either kind of embrace the current position they have and the current role they're in, or if they should start expending energy to go look for another one. I think it's really easy to get stuck in that I'm going to go try to find something better phase when in reality, you might get further ahead, both emotionally and financially by sticking with what you have and expending that energy there. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest career traps is this comparison to others, right? So it's like, oh wait, am I happy where I am or am I fine where I am? But everyone around me just got a new job and everyone around me is making more money or everyone around me is doing this other thing. And so we get in this like analysis paralysis where like we can't make any moves because we don't know what to do because we're so busy looking outward at like where are the answers from other people. And so, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard this term, but like growth mindset versus fixed mindset. Fixed mindset is literally being so stuck to one idea that the idea of letting go of it is more painful than the idea of being flexible and kind of changing gears. So I think a lot of this comes starts with like mindset, which I'm not a very woo woo person, but I understand why people say like, it kind of starts with you and your mindset. And like, I see this a lot where people are constantly switching jobs because they're unhappy and they think if they switch a job, this thing is going to fix it. But you take yourself wherever you go, right? And so if you don't address that stuff, you just find it wherever you go next. And the challenge with that is, okay, so you can either be reactive in your career or you can be proactive. I'm personally team proactive, right? I would rather instead of switch jobs every two years and then constantly get in this cycle of like, well, I don't like this coworker and I don't like this thing. I would rather do the work to figure out, okay, where is it that I want to drive my career and how can I proactively make the moves to get there? I'm not saying you're not going to have bad days and you're not going to have moments where you question everything you're doing. Of course you are. (laughs) You're human. But when you have sort of that North Star that's a lot more unique to you, it's incredibly helpful. I mean, there's research that shows what makes people fulfilled in a job is being able to have like autonomy over their tasks, clear feedback, like things that you're like, oh, isn't that really simple? But 90% of people don't ask about that kind of stuff in an interview, right? So they go and find a new job. They hear the salary or the job title and they're like, I want that. And then they're not engaged because they're not getting clear feedback. They don't have ownership over their tasks, whatever it is, the boss relationship's bad. It's like, but you, you focused on all these like external things when you knew this internal thing was actually incredibly important for you to feel fulfilled in your career. And that can be the good enough job, right? It could be the fact that when you think about those sort of things, you're like, you know, actually what I need to do is ask for a raise, right? I'm focused on the salary, but in my current job, I have a great relationship with my boss. They give me good feedback. I have autonomy. It's like reshifting that to realize like, I've got it pretty good here. And maybe I need to make these small tweaks to like fill in this gap that I'm feeling, but I don't need to change the whole thing. Right. Um, And there's sort of this like feeling, I feel like where people feel like they've got to become this human DIY project. Like if I want to be fulfilled in my career, I got to blow the whole thing up and start over. (laughs) I'm always like, (laughs) 
okay, that's like the nuclear option, which is possible. <laughs> you, know, you can do that, but you can also take a step back and say like, let me again, be, get in the driver's seat and do the things I have to do to do that. First of all, I feel like I'm in a therapy session right now because Hello, career coaching. No, just kidding. <laughs> I know we've had conversations in the past. We've become friends. Like I wrote these questions ahead of time. And so I didn't think there was going to be anything revelatory that was going to come up for me during this interview. But I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh my God, I actually think I've totally fell victim to this because I remember leaving a job that, to your point, it had so many good qualities. I loved my manager. We had an amazing relationship. She was so invested in my growth. My team was awesome. I had a ton of autonomy. I was had a lot of reputational capital built up in the company because I'd been there for a while. But my salary was not great. And when I got a job offer from a big tech company for a decent amount more money, it was not insignificant. I basically just saw the money and was like, I'm doing it. It would be stupid not to do it. And I guess in some ways you could say that that was a fair decision. And when you're young, you should try new things. But I remember experiencing some regret about that choice because I realized I wasn't acknowledging how much I was giving up in order to get that extra money. And I was basically starting from square one, right? Like you're starting over effectively when you go somewhere else. And so I think it was still enough that it was still the right, quote unquote, right decision but it certainly brought up a lot of pain and regret in hindsight because I just wasn't acknowledging that that was going to be a thing. I didn't even think about the fact that the job I had was already really excellent, quite honestly. When I got this Morning Brew deal and decided to do Money with Katie full-time, I experienced a bit of an expectation hangover because you think, oh my God, my dreams are coming true. Everything is going to be amazing. I'm never going to have another bad day again. Work is never going to be work again. And frankly, that's just not how it is. You underestimate the downsides. And for me, the downside often is some of the interactions I have with strangers on the internet that are not so nice. Yeah. And you don't think about that when you're going into something that, hey, maybe there is going to be a downside that you're not accounting for it can kind of sour you or make you think, oh my God, like this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. It's something wrong. And to your point about the North Star and how that can help, I think remembering what you're orienting yourself toward and what the real true point of what you're doing is and not getting lost in the expectation of, oh, well, I've got this dream job now and so now I'm good. And if I ever experience another negative emotion, that means something is very, very wrong. And that's just not realistic. Yeah. One thing I've said about entrepreneurship too, especially is you experience the highest highs and the lowest lows. And most of the time they're in the same hour. Like <laughs> so true. there is something about entrepreneurship, especially where when it comes to these, you know, quote unquote jobs and most entrepreneurs are like, you know, not to make it your identity, you know, not to become overly emotional and personal about it, which is extremely hard, especially if like your name is literally in the name of your business and your face is the name of your business. And that's going to be a whole other, you know, world of research that they kind of, especially with the creator economy kind of blowing up the way it is. But I think that one of the reasons why we see a lot of burnout is a lot of people are like, oh, the answer to burnout, if you're the entrepreneur or the person in your career, is just some more self-love. Like just go take a spa day, get a pedicure. And whether you're an entrepreneur or you are a person who's working for an organization where you've got different stressors, 
self-compassion is something that you like is incredibly important. There's a great book called Essentialism where it's all about understanding like what your key focus is. And I love it because he's like, there's trade-offs, right? Like if you, you're not going to do everything. And I think that's really helpful for people who are trying to do it all or feel the need to kind of do it all. I can remember distinctly when I quote unquote got my dream job. I remember I was in a spin class and you, know, you look at yourself in the mirror. <laughs> and I remember thinking like, here I am in my 7 a.m. spin class going to my dream job after this. Like I have got my shit together and my life is just perfect. I mean, the cockiness of being 25 and thinking that is really funny, but also just recognizing to your point, like not every day was great. Like other things popped up, you know, I, I ended up leaving that job, you know? And so it's just really funny because companies also exploit this dream job, right? Like they know what job titles to put, they know what perks and this and that they know that you want to be able to go to the cocktail party and say, you work at this brand or do this thing. 1000%. And that you want the oohs and the ahs. You come to this point in your life where you kind of are like, this is like peak bullshit. This is the lie that they have sold us to benefit them. And we are suckers. And I'm not saying that you can't move up in your career and have interesting work and be engaged. I think when I think of the good enough job, I think of it very much of like, you're getting off the hamster wheel, right? You're, you're basically saying I'm taking the reins and I'm kind of prioritizing. These things are really important to me. I'm going to pursue these things in a career. For people who are really interested in this topic, I have a great blog post. We can send it to you. Katie, you can put it in the show notes. That's all about how to find it, what people find the most fulfilling. So you can kind of guide this a little bit. But I think in the last year with COVID especially, people's jobs weren't there to save them in the middle of the pandemic. And so they realized, like, I'm giving so much to this quote-unquote dream job. And yeah, the free cafeteria food or whatever wasn't enough. And like they dropped people like hot potatoes when it suited them and things like that. So I think what we're talking about for once, (laughs) people have more context and understand the concept so much more. And they recognize my life and my time and my resources are very valuable. And how do I want to spend them? And they're being very thoughtful about that in a way that I think this is like that weird silver lining of COVID that we've all come out of. And I think that also for employees, they feel like they've got more power right now to ask for the things that they need. I know it's not easy stuff. And that's why I think people always get a little frustrated with career conversations. But the bottom line is like, it's worth it to be that proactive person and to have some focus areas and the North Star and all the stuff we're talking about. There are two things that I'm noticing here as a through line and they are related. One is you said about not taking things personally. I think that that is true whether you are an entrepreneur kind of at an extreme, especially if you are the business or you are the product. But I also think that it's possible to be taking things really personally at work when you get feedback that's negative. It coalesces really well with your points about identity and your job becoming your identity. And I think I would guess that many of us underestimate how much we derive our identity from what we do. It seems like it boils down to this kind of existential, scarier question to answer, which is maybe it's not about this job at all. Maybe it's about how I conceptualize of myself and the identity that I'm getting from working for this company or doing this job or making this amount of money. Well, now the stakes just rose because now it's not just a business transaction. Now it's, this is who I am. This is my core. 
that's part of how I define my self-worth. And like for a lot of people, their self-worth directly equals their net worth. Hi, my name is Katie. (laughs) Yeah. If I earn more, I'm literally more valuable to myself, worth more. Right. And so these all come back to sort of like, how do you speak to yourself? Where do these things start from? And this gets even deeper into sort of like maybe as a kid, like what, what was the thing, you know, and, and sort of recognizing that. And, um, to your point. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a direct correlation between taking things personal. And I've just heard so many like amazing leaders talk about how like one of the best things you can do is learn not to take things personal and everything is like a personal critique towards you and look at things more as like, this person is giving me this feedback and what can I do with it? And it's so hard to do that. And again, I think the millennial generation where the, you know, AKA the trophy generation, we were always fantastic. We were always special. We were always like, you can't always be special. You can't always be the best, but you can always have that quote unquote growth mindset about, okay, what can I take from this and learn and how can I do it better? And I'm not saying it's easy. Like, I'm just pointing out that like, if you really want to get off this hamster wheel and like feel like you can breathe and like have work be work and life be life, like that's that's a key ingredient for sure. Cheers. Thank you for being on the show today. That was an amazing conversation. You can send me the therapist bill <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Send me an invoice. Um, thank you. I really appreciate you lending us your knowledge. Thanks for having me. And so you might be wondering, okay, cool. Well, how do you suggest I become engaged and fulfilled by my fake email job, huh? Voice in the speakers, what say you? And I have a good answer for you, and it's called Cosplay Someone Who Is. I know that sounds insane, but think for a moment and conjure a fake employee tasked with doing your job, who has been obsessed with being this particular thing their entire lives. Like, let's say you're an executive assistant. This person grew up dressing up as an executive assistant for Halloween every year and made their mommy play CEO with a complex calendar with them. Got it? What would someone who's obsessed with this role do differently? How would they approach it? How would they structure their week? You might be like, oh, well, they would use an automation software to make this more streamlined and they'd probably send proactive check-ins with information before someone asks for it. And they'd maintain calendars with the precision and discipline of a German train schedule. And well, they'd probably send thank you notes on their boss's behalf and yada, yada, yada. You get the picture. You cosplay it. What would someone whose ultimate passion in life being this job do? How would they act? Then make a list of all of those things. Next, you go through that list and you start mapping those things onto a weekly schedule. So in this way, you're starting to take, you know, this picture perfect description of how to do this job and you're giving yourself autonomy over those things. So maybe... Monday from 8 to 9 a.m., they would groom calendars for the week. Maybe from 9 to 10, they'd scan through email and make a list of what's important and deliver it in a timely update. Maybe after that, they'd field any new requests for the next hour, and then maybe then they'd pivot back to offense after that. When you map it onto a weekly calendar, it makes it repeatable and real. It takes it from, I don't know, that person would probably be more enthusiastic and proactive to that person would spend 2 to 3 p.m. every Tuesday cleaning up their record keeping and doing proactive sales outreach, right? Totally different mindset. And I don't know, I'm really just making shit up here, but hopefully you get the picture about what I mean by cosplaying someone that's obsessed with and passionate about this particular role. 
Now, I've done this before. I have actively cosplayed someone who would be obsessed with my job to see what it would feel like. And you know what it made me realize? I was wasting a ton of time. I went through a single week mapped out like the ideal worker bee version of me, and I realized that I kind of slack off a lot. I spent way more time than I realized just dicking around. And if you had asked me prior to this week about how efficient and productive I was, I would have given myself a pretty high score. But it wasn't until I actually mapped out an ideal productive week and tried to actually follow the schedule that I realized how lackluster my performance had been and also the fact that it made it a little bit more fun and made me feel more in control when I was determining the exact proactive way that I wanted to approach the work. If you train yourself to like what you do, I guarantee you that your performance will improve. And you might not even mind working more than 40 hours a week if that's ever necessary. But here's the thing. I don't think you'll have to because you'll probably discover that you weren't using your original 40 hours very effectively anyway. And if some parts of this feel slippery, try to operationalize it. For example, we all know how important relationships are at work. We always hear that if you want to make more money and climb the ladder and do whatever— Networking and building relationships is key, but that can feel very awkward and untenable. It's like, what does that even mean, build relationships? But if you operationalize it, if you say, all right, well, for 45 minutes on every Thursday from 9 to 9.45 a.m., I'm going to send five outreach emails to people in my department or outside my department to check in or set up 20 minutes to hear about what they're working on, that takes it from this kind of a slippery, abstract idea to something that you can actually execute. And at first, I'm going to be honest, it's going to feel like an exhausting drag to actually follow through with this plan. But even if only 50% of your changes stick, you'll still be 50% more likely than appear to be promoted or more likely to have access to more opportunities across your organization. Because that's the crazy part. Most people set the bar for performance pretty low. Even if you look at your own performance, you can probably objectively call out a few areas where you could improve. Putting in 50% more effort will make you stand out disproportionately. And standing out and feeling like you're doing really well is fun. And it'll be a positively reinforcing cycle in most cases. And remember, this is both in service of earning more money over the long term, which, hello, Money with Katie show, that matters to us. But it's also about just enjoying your work more. And honestly, I think that in and of itself is really worth the time and effort. All right, Rich Girls, that is all for this week. I cannot wait to hear how cosplaying better employees goes for you and what the results are. I will see you next week, same time, same place on The Money with Katie Show. Our show is a production of Morning Brew and is produced by the fabulous Nick Torres and me. Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia and Bean Dog is our chief of Woof, who barks at the most inopportune times, while Sam Cat is our chief chaos agent, loudly knocking shit off the desk when he disagrees with me. Though today he slept like a good boy during our entire recording. Mm-hmm.